Welcome. Our psalm for today, Psalm 76, refers in verse 4 to the mountains of prey. There were many wild animals, fierce wild animals, in ancient Israel, and they would roam across the mountains searching for animals that they could kill to eat. So there were wild dogs, and there were bears, and there were wolves, uh, and many other such animals that, that lived by attacking smaller animals. But there was one animal, the lion, which also lived there, and which was more fierce than any of them, and was afraid of none of them. My name is Keith Simons. I'm a Bible teacher from England, and uh, I present these talks on how to understand the King James Bible using the Psalms. Today, as I say, we're looking at Psalm 76. Let's begin, as we always do, uh, by reading the title of the psalm. To the chief musician on Neginot, a psalm or song of Asaph. So we've got something of the history of this psalm in the heading. It's of Asaph. In other words, it was written by one of the temple musicians who was called Asaph. He wrote about a dozen of the psalms. And when he'd written it, he saw that it was an excellent psalm. He saw it was to be used in the praise of God. So he sent it to the chief musician, to the leader of the worship of God in the temple for use in worship. And he gave direction as to how it was to be used. It was to be used on Neginot. Neginot refers to stringed instruments, so it was to be sung and played on the stringed instruments. Things like harps or lyres, or today we would have guitars. It would be played on that sort of instrument. A psalm or song. This really repeats the idea that it's for music. He says this three times, Neginot, psalm, song. It's to be sung with music. That's how he believes this psalm should be presented in the worship of God. Verse 1. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. Israel, the people of God, descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their twelve tribes. God's name is great in Israel. His name refers to his reputation. God has a great reputation in Israel. Israel has learned that God is truly great. But how much more so in Judah is God known? Judah, the, the uh, tribe of Israel's kings, the tribe from which David and Solomon came, the tribe to which Christ himself belonged. In Judah is God known. God's people in Judah know their God. They know his power. They know his strength. They know that he is truly the one and only God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who rules over all things. 
And although enemies might attack Israel, although they might attack Judah, Israel and Judah can turn to their God, to the living God. They can depend and trust on God to protect them. Why? Because verse 2, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Now, we're used to this word tabernacle as we look at the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament. The tabernacle was, in most of the Psalms, in the rest of the Old Testament, referring to the sacred tent, the precursor of the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God was worshipped. But that's not the meaning here. If we look at the Hebrew word that's used for tabernacle in verse 2, and the Hebrew word that's used for dwelling place also in verse 2, they're different words, but they have a similar meaning, a layer, a den, the hiding place of a fierce wild animal. And that is the meaning of the Hebrew words used twice, therefore, in verse 2, tabernacle and dwelling place. It's saying God is like that lion in my introduction, that fiercest and most powerful of all the wild animals. And he has a hiding place. He has a place where he waits. It is in Salem, in Zion. Okay, Zion is another name that we're used to from the rest of the Psalms. It is the name of Jerusalem, an ancient name for Jerusalem. Especially, it seems to refer to the original city of Jerusalem that David captured. And then later on, it, it referred to the area where the temple was built, where, where God's house was in Zion. Salem is an even more ancient name for Jerusalem. You'll notice that it's the end of the word Jerusalem. The name Jerusalem means something like a vision of peace. And Salem, the same as the modern word Shalom, means peace. Jerusalem was the capital of ancient Israel, the capital that David established. And when uh, Judah became a separate country from northern Israel, Jerusalem remained the capital of Judah. So we're saying that here in the capital of Israel, God has a hiding place. God is there, our powerful God. He's there, as we shall see, to defend his people. Because verse 3, there in Jerusalem, in Salem, in Zion, break he the arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, and the battle. Okay, let's go through this. So we're saying that God broke a battle. There was a war against Israel. There was a war against Jerusalem. And the enemy reached right to the gates of Jerusalem, but no further because God, the powerful God, was hiding in Jerusalem. And when he came out, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword. Okay, 
The bow was the weapon we're familiar to it from stories of cowboys and Indians. And uh, it was, in fact, used across the world. Um, a string attached to, to uh, a piece of wood, a flexible piece of wood, which would shoot an arrow. And these were very powerful weapons in ancient wars because it meant you could kill someone or injure someone from a great distance. Then the sword, the weapon for fighting someone who was close to you, a knife, a long, long knife, which you could kill with. A shield, of course, is not an offensive weapon. It's not a weapon for attack. It's a weapon for defence. But, of course, if someone were attacking you, a shield becomes a method of attack. In ancient times, the shields were boards of of wood or leather stretched across a wooden frame to be as light as possible and to be as large as possible and to protect from arrows which might be shot at you. Yet God ended this war. He defeated totally the enemy. There at Jerusalem break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword. Everything that the enemy brought to attack Jerusalem was destroyed. If your arrows are broken, you can't shoot them. If your shield is broken, you can't defend yourself. If your sword is broken, you can attack no one. This powerful God had defeated the enemy. And with the news of that great victory for God and for Israel and for Judah, Asaph pauses with words seller. It might be a word to praise God, it might be a musical pause, but I always think when we read a psalm, it's a good point to pause for a second or two to consider what we've just read. And then we continue with verse 4, which seems to be spoken to God. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. This, of course, is where we began our psalm, the mountains, or we began our talk, rather, the mountains of prey. The idea of powerful kings like those, like those wild dogs who would chase all over the mountains, terrifying people. That was how kings behaved. They established in the nations round Israel their rule by cruelty, by violence by hunting down people. And yet God, the great King, is more glorious and excellent than the men who hunt across the mountains of Israel to try and increase their power. God is more glorious and excellent. God has proved that he can win the victory over the most powerful enemy who attacks his people. Verse 5 describes again how he did it. The stout-hearted are spoiled. Stout-hearted. In the Hebrew language, that translates a couple of words that mean the mighty in heart. It's describing powerful soldiers, people who are afraid of nothing. They are afraid of nothing, but they are defeated. The stout-hearted are are spoiled. So just as they went to rob uh, and to plunder 
and to kill, just like those wild dogs went across the hills. No, it's they themselves, the stout-hearted themselves, these mighty enemy soldiers who've lost everything. To spoil someone means, means to rob them, to rob them of everything they possess. In fact, it's worse than that because they've slept their sleep. And that sleep is a word picture for death. There they lie on the hillside. They went to attack and rob Jerusalem. But their dead bodies are lying on the hill there. And their possessions are taken from them. They've lost everything in this foolish attack because they did not realise that God was there to defend his people from their enemies. None of the men of might have found their hands. The men of might, again, it's describing these mighty, strong soldiers. And normally they would use their hands. They would use their hands to shoot their arrows. They would use their hands to fight with their swords. But if they've not found their hands, well, that's a way of describing them in total confusion, totally powerless, maybe running away, maybe already dead. What did it take from God to destroy these enemies? What does it take from, for a lion to frighten away dogs from the place where it is? Well, the lion just needs to roar. And God, to defend his people, only needed to speak. Verse 6, at thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a deep sleep. At thy rebuke, you told them off, God. You spoke against them. You gave your roar of warning to them. Because you are the God of Jacob. Jacob is, was given the name Israel by God. And so therefore we could translate this as, O God of Israel. The God of Israel spoke against these enemies who were attacking his people. And that was enough to defeat them totally. Both the chariot and horse are cast into a deep sleep. The word picture here is of an army with horses racing in with chariots. Chariots were simple wheeled vehicles, but uh, to us today it doesn't sound very much a chariot pulled by a horse. But these were the best technology in ancient battles. They looked to the people of the ancient world like a tank does to us today an enemy which is totally impossible to defeat. And yet God spoke his rebuke and the horses lie dead in a deep sleep and the chariots lie on the mountainside abandoned to rust and to ruin because God has defeated them totally. And so in verse 7, Asaph comments, Thou, God, even thou, ought to be feared. You deserve respect. You deserve respect for your awesome deeds, for your power, for the success you've won in battle against the enemy. We were too weak. We had no hopes of defeating an enemy like that. But you, God, did it. And to you deserves honour and respect. Who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? It's a question 
Can anyone stand in the sight of God if God is angry? If God is angry with them, is there anyone powerful enough to stay still? Are any of those wild dogs powerful enough when they realise that an angry lion is chasing after them? No, they're cast into utter weakness. And so how much more when the living God is angry with a person, when the living God is angry against the enemy army that is attacking his people. Verse 8, thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. So what was this rebuke? It was God's word of judgment. God had acted as the judge of his people and he had decided to save his people and to act against a cruel enemy. And as soon as that judgment was heard, that judgment which God spoke in heaven, then the enemy was defeated. The earth feared, the earth respected God and was still the war had ended. Now, for those of you who are interested in reading the Psalms well, I'd like to point out to you that the end of verse 8 does not in the King James Bible have a full stop. It has a comma. It's usual when people read the Bible for them, especially in the King James Version, to pause at the end of each each, uh, verse. But where you see a comma there, The intention is that you do not pause at that point, that you read it continuously. Let me read verses 8 and the beginning of verse 9 correctly. Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the meek on earth. So we're saying that the earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment. When God made his judgment, when he sat there, or when he rose up from there, having made his judgment against that cruel enemy, it was then that the earth feared and was still. God spoke his words in heaven. God made his judgment, and the earth respected him, and the whole world had to respect the judgment that God had made. Why did God arise to judgment? Why did God decide to make his judgment against the cruel enemy? It was the end of verse 9, to save all the meek of the earth. The earth can often be translated the land, meaning the land of Israel. The meek means the poor, the humble. Yes, God's people should be humble people. God cares about people who don't depend on their own strength, who are weak in themselves, but who look to him for the help, who look to him for strength, who look to him to save them from their troubles, from their enemies, from their problems. And God rose. He saw his people. He saw them in their weakness. He saw them calling upon him for help and putting their trust in him and knowing that they could not save themselves. So God rose to judgment. So God acted and he acted in power to save his people. God is a saviour. God is the God who saves or rescues his people. And with that Asaph, That's another little pause with the word 
Selah. And then in verse 10, he moves to his conclusion. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Surely, God, you're going to take the wrath of man, man's anger, and you'll turn the situation around. You'll take a situation where cruel enemies are so angry and so nasty, and you'll change it to a situation where your people praise you and give you honour. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. You'll stop the remainder or the rest of the wrath of anger. You will stop the rest of the anger. Of whose anger? Is it that God is stopping the rest of the anger that men exercise against his people? Is it that that God is restraining or stopping? Or is it God's anger that he's restraining? Is this God's wrath? God has acted in anger against this nasty enemy, but his anger is not complete. Nevertheless, God stops there. He doesn't continue to the final judgment and the final punishment of all the evil people. Not yet. He restrains his wrath because he wants to give more people the opportunity to hear and to respect him and to turn to him. And so it continues in verse 11. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring, bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. So to vow means to make promises and to pay means to carry out promises. Carry out your promises to God. And the call is not just to Israel's people uh, who have the Lord as their God, but also to all that be round about him. To those people who are powerful people in countries round about Israel. Show your respect to God. Bring presents to him. He has proved that he is the one that ought to be feared. In other words, the one that you should respect. You shouldn't respect these cruel kings who are around Israel, who God can defeat in a moment. No, all the nations around Israel should turn to Israel's God, the true and living God who has his dwelling place in Zion. They should come and bring presents to him. This is a reference to the way in which when, for example, King David overcame his enemies round about, they paid tribute, they paid their taxes to David and they declared themselves loyal to David. David had defeated uh, their armies and now they declared themselves to be ruled by David so that David would not attack them anymore. And so the author of this psalm, Asaph, calls on the countries round about Israel. God is the God whom you should respect. And so therefore, just as you will bring your taxes before the king of Israel, when the king of Israel rules over you, so you must bring your respect, your honour, your presence, in the words of the psalm, to God. You should bring him your gifts to show that you respect him as your God and your leader. Verse 12, he shall cut off the spirit 
of princes. The word prince here doesn't really mean the family member of a king in the way that we use that word today. It means a captain or an army commander. If God cuts off their spirit, he makes these powerful men utterly weak. Their spirit is what gives them strength. No, God has acted against them and he's made them weak. They attacked Israel in such power, but now they must see that they're disheartened, discouraged. They cannot attack Israel anymore. He's taken away all their strength. The last line, he is terrible to the kings of earth. Terrible, we, we would say today, he's terrifying to the kings of earth. We, we would say, you know, the kings of all these nations round about Israel, they'd seen now the power of God. They'd seen the force when he came out of his dwelling place, when he came out to oppose their armies. They've seen how he defeats them. And so they should bring presents. They should respect him. They should fear him. They should give honour to him. Once they considered themselves so powerful, they would terrify the people who lived in their countries, they would terrify, they would make so afraid the people of Israel. When they attacked Israel, they came into Israel, they came to Jerusalem. But when God acted against them, they saw who was truly powerful. They saw who could truly defeat them. It was God, the living God, the God of Israel, the God of Jerusalem, the God of Verse 2, Salem, the God who brings peace to his people. In a moment, I shall read to you the whole psalm. But firstly, my, my email address so that you can write to me, 333kjv at gmail.com. Let me know which country you're listening to this program in. 333kjv at gmail.com. And now I shall read you the whole of Psalm 76. To the chief musician on Neginot, a psalm or song of Asaph. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, and the battle. Selah. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a deep sleep. Thou, even thou art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. Sella.
Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth.